And welcome back to another episode of our podcast of Identity Formation in the Adventist Church. I'm joined today by Dr. Courtney Ray. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And I am eager to be here and glad to be able to talk to the audience. A lot of the Spectrum listeners have read a lot that I've uh, actually written over the many years that I've been with Spectrum, but um, not many people have heard my voice. So um, I'm glad to be able to do this podcast with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's really exciting having you. I've enjoyed many of your articles. You have about a hundred posted so far. So you, you bring out a really awesome depth and perspective, which I'm excited to hear. We, um, we usually start with kind of a background. You grew up in New York City. You've were at one point ordained, I shouldn't say at one point you are ordained minister, at one point having served as a pastor. And then you moved into the field of neuropsychology with your PhD. So how, how did that all come about? Well, I mean, there's a long story and there's a longer story, <laughs> but I'll try to give you kind of maybe the medium. So uh, you asked a few questions there. So I, yes, I did grow up in New York City. I am from the Bronx and I went to R.T. Hudson Elementary School, which is the Adventist school. I went to Northeastern Academy and I went to Andrews University and I graduated with a double major of psychology and theology. And I was uh, hired to teach actually, I had like a little gap year between my uh, senior year of college and then my first year of seminary because I wanted to take a little bit of a break. But I went back to seminary, got my MDiv. Um, I was not sponsored because very it, uh, many of you already know that there is a lot of bias in a lot of congregations against women in ministry. And back in that time when I was in seminary, it was even um, far rarer to have women in ministry than it is now. Um, and it's kind of scary to think about how long ago that was. But um, yeah, when I went, there were a few other women in ministry, though, who uh, I'm still friends with today. We have a really great women clergy network. I um, was asked by a friend of mine to come and be a Bible worker for um, NET 2004, which was held in Maryland, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and Walter Pearson was the evangelist and Freddie Russell was the pastor at the church, Miracle Temple, where the evangelistic series was going to be held. So I went out there and I did Bible work there. And Pastor Russell said, hey, why don't you stay here and go ahead and serve as one of the associate pastors? And so I was a youth pastor. And that's how I got um, first hired in the denomination. And I stayed at Miracle Temple for a number of years. Then I got a call out to uh, Fresno Adventist Academy to be the chaplain out there in Central California. So that's how I found my way to the West Coast. When I went there, um, I spent a couple years there. I was able to get a call down in Southern California, which I was very happy for because I had much more of a network there. Lots of people both in Southeastern California Conference and Southern California Conference that I knew and went to school with and was really good friends with. And so I spent uh, the largest part of my ministry there, about uh, a little over 10 years there. 
And while I was there, one of the things that I noticed was that there were a lot of people who would come to me for pastoral counseling and come to ask different questions about mental health. And I did a lot of trying to get them to go to um, mental health professionals and try to convince them of how beneficial it would be. But there's a large stigma against people um, who are Christian um, and I mean, there's a large stigma that Christian people have uh, against psychology and particularly in the black community, there's also a stigma. So you have kind of a double stigma there um, from both the side that is the culture of the religion and also the culture of um, just race where you have sort of these um, issues of people not really wanting to get into therapy, um, really being distrustful of therapy. So for me, a lot of people um, would come to me asking about different issues um, in mental health. They wanted to find out about uh, a lot of issues that I thought would be better handled by a professional counselor. And I would try to tell them um, and convince them like, hey, this would be really great for you to go to a professional to get these issues dealt with. But there's a large stigma both in the Christian community and in the black community against seeking um, professional psychological help. And even though that's changing a lot now, uh, particularly at that time, there were a lot of people who really didn't want to go to anyone outside of basically a Christian environment. So they would come to me as their pastor and they trusted me to talk to them and to counsel them. But going to someone else who was not affiliated with the church, um, you know, there was a lot of distrust for that. Uh, it's like I said, better now, but still there's a lot of work to be done. I have had many, many conversations with people who still kind of misunderstand and misconstrue what happens in therapy. And, and so they're very skeptical about going. Um, but at the time, I figured that if I'm going to be the person that people trust to come to do counseling, then I should know what I'm doing. Um, at seminary, I had actually taken a large number of counseling classes, the maximum amount actually of counseling classes that we had to offer, um, I took. But I felt like there were still some things that were just above what my training was. And so I went to Loma Linda University. I entered into the um, psychology program there. And the, the plan <laughs> was to use those skills as a pastor, still stay in my uh, congregation and to be able to build sort of um, a an outlet for ministry and helping people in mental health within the com within the congregation. Um, and the regional director that I had at the time, um, Dr. Anthony Kelly, he was very supportive. He and his wife um, were very encouraging for me to go to get my doctorate. Um, and they were exceptionally um, eager for me <laughs> to get it done. Um, and so I went and I was there I did my PhD program in five years, but in the fifth year, um, we had a change of our ministerial director. And that, because unfortunately, uh, Pastor Kelly, Dr. Kelly passed away from cancer. 
And um, the new regional director was kind of antagonistic towards the fact that I was going to school. And it really was uh, just a, a horrible <laughs> sort of situation, I'll say that, because there was a lot of um, confusion about why would I want to go into something that wasn't a past, what we would traditionally call a pastoral ministry field. Like, why wouldn't I get a demon or something like that? And it really, um, it was really quite apparent that the leadership at that time did not understand and did not value having um, skills outside of what we would call the traditional ministry route, like, you know, what, why are you doing this? And at one point, um, someone within the conference said, well, do you want to be a psychologist or do you want to be a pastor? And it, it was just really um, an unwelcome, hostile environment at that time. And, you know, the conference didn't pay for my schooling. I paid for my schooling out of my own uh, savings. And I did all of that while I was pastoring. And the people in my congregation were also very supportive. And the the pastors that I worked with when I was on a pastoral staff, they were also very supportive. Um, but I felt like the my conference leadership just did not really value that and didn't really understand that. And they made it they made it intentionally <laughs> very hard. Um, and it was one of those challenges where at the end of the day, it was just like, well, if I'm if this is not something that um, falls within the traditional Adventist uh, confines, this little box of what ministry is, then it's not really ministry. And so that was very disheartening for me and very, uh, you know, sad that that was sort of the mindset. And I think that other conferences, I'm not sure how it is in my old conference now, I, I think that other conferences are a little bit more um, open to that because this isn't like a universal um, NAD policy. You, Lots of people think that like California is always super progressive, but there are some pockets of California <laughs> that are less progressive than other parts. And, um, you know, there are other places in the country and other conferences who have really been very supportive of their um, pastors getting further education and things outside of just strictly theology. And they have really honed in on being able to help people with um, mental health issues, really varying the types of ministry that are available. And so I'm glad to see those changes. And it really does, again, um, lie with the leadership. So um, now I am pastoring I'm not pastoring at a traditional church. I'm helping pastors to develop mental health ministries. I am helping them to um, understand how to link up with uh, professionals in the mental health field outside of their congregations, how to do warm handoffs, how to take care of their own mental health. I've done workshops with unions and conferences and local congregations and churches, dealing with grief, dealing with trauma, different things like that. And so even though I'm not in a um, traditional pastorship anymore, I still am doing ministry in a, in a larger, broader way. And I'm glad that I'm able to do that as well as my private practice. 
um, where I'm doing neuropsychology. So um, that is the long answer <laughs> to, to, I mean, your, your question was all encompassing. So <laughs> but I was able to give you the, the entire answer. Yeah, that's an amazing story and a lot to overcome. A lot of steps, a lot of people throwing shade in your way all the way back to seminary. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I, I wanted to go to the beginning and kind of retrace some of the questions that I was coming to my mind. And the first one is, what made you decide to do ministry, to go into ministry in the first place? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, well, the short answer is that I feel that God called me into ministry. Um, the longer answer is that when I was in high school, I didn't grow up Adventist. My family's not Adventist. I went to Adventist school and then my friends brought me into the church and invited me to church and I got baptized as, uh, you know, an 11 year old in elementary school. And then I had a, thankfully, a wonderful church family. I had lots of people who were very supportive to me in my spiritual journey. Um, and when I got to high school, though, I noticed that there were a lot of kids who grew up Adventist. They had been generally, generationally Adventist, um, you know, third, fourth, fifth <laughs> generation Adventist. And they didn't have that same kind of, you know, great relationship where it was much more perfunctory. It was much more, oh, I have to do this because my family says that. And, you know, it was something that I didn't really understand. Like, how how is this, like, not exciting for you? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. And for me, I felt that, um, you know, there are ways that ministers and ministry can, can really facilitate that. And you know, now, and this is, it is so funny, like thinking about um, then and now, because now you see a lot of churches that have youth pastors, a lot of Baptist churches that have youth pastors. But back in the day, that was kind of a novelty. Um, not every church had a youth pastor, not an Adventism, um, and specifically not in Black Adventism. Um, so it was kind of a rarity to have someone specifically like really just honing in on young people, just saying, yeah, we want you to develop. We are looking for you. And even now, um, there's still kind of a, a, this idea that uh, youth pastors are sort of intern pastors and it's a stepping stone to being yeah. a quote unquote real pastor. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I, I was just like, you know, that's people should be fostering our young people. And even though at that time, I was a young people. <laughs> I was just like, you know, um, you know, I can do something to help bring about that change, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And so um, that was kind of the impetus for me going into ministry. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective in that you were excited about something that you got to claim opposed to the lifelongers who were Oh, I have to do this again. Oh, I have to. I mean, yeah. for me, growing up at this, Saturday was always the most boring day, right? Because <laughs> you can't do anything. Yeah. But for somebody that's worked their whole life or not seen the value of time, Sabbath can be such a beautiful gift. And, you know, I've met people who knew of the church because of the health message. And they're like, yeah, I've lost so much weight. Or So it's always good to, re 
to have those stories like hey we have something cool and beautiful and so yeah there's a good (laughs) yeah but there is good yeah and so this experience drew you into and like you said becoming part of the solution so did was there a time when you realized coming to university setting that you mentioned that oh no it's held against me that i'm a woman did you did you experience that yeah you know it's kind of strange because again not growing up so going to church as a young person I kind of grew up Adventist, but not really because my family wasn't. Um, and so some of these little political ins and outs were not things that were really known to me because my family wasn't all into that. And so I remember um, a boy in my high school saying, oh, yeah, girls can't be pastors. And I was just kind of like, what? You're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of blew him off. And it really wasn't until I was like, deep into my program in theology. Like I had declared theology as my major and I had been doing it for a while before I found out like, oh, wait, like this is a controversy. This is a thing. Um, and my and my undergrad professors, God bless them, never had any kind of issues. Um, they were very supportive. I just knew that there were not a lot of women who were in my department, but you know, it, it took a while for me to realize that there was sort of this antagonism in the wider church against women in ministry. And I had, I had no idea coming from my background, my own church, they didn't uh, say anything. Um, When I went back for that gap year during that time, when I um, had finished graduating college and I was, you know, that year between um, college and seminary, you know, I served as my AY leader at my home church and like they were super supportive of me. Like it was very strange to know that in other places, women's ministry was not taken seriously and they were not um, welcome to be pastors. And so it was, it's a very different experience, very different experience. So you found it as something that came later, but did it, do you feel like it dampened your, your ministry role or is it something that was always, okay, I know it's over there, but in my community here, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, I think that where it really became an issue, like a a real, real issue, I think was at the time when I was getting ready to be hired, um, so I sent out, this is, I mean, this is early 2000s, right? So it wasn't like you just go online and find out who's hiring. Like that was not <laughs> it. it. was you print out a hard copy of your resume and you send it like by snail mail to the conference <laughs> and wait for a letter or a phone call or something like that. And so I remember sending out my resume and, you know, the person called back and left the message on the phone. It was like, oh, we really are interested in your um, in your resume and you know, da 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 da. You, you know, they were just effusive with like all this praise about like I guess the recommendation letters that I had gotten from my professors and all and you know my transcripts and all this other kind of stuff. And when I called back because my name 
is a unisex name. And so they had no idea that I was a woman, apparently. <laughs> and so when I called back and they were like, oh, are you Courtney? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, oh. <laughs> it was visible. There's visible disappointment. And it was like, and they were like, well, you know, we don't, we don't hire women for pastor, pastoral positions. And I was like, oh, okay. Like they just straight up said that. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> you know, and it was just really, and that, um, that happened more than once. I won't give the names of any conferences and <laughs> shout anybody out there, but you know, that was a common experience and it, and it was very interesting because I, you know, had done well scholastically and I had, um, I had even tutored a lot of my friends um, in Greek and tutored a lot of them in biblical studies, like in our different classes and stuff like that. Like I tested out a Greek uh, and it was just really discouraging, like on the other end where it was like, oh yeah, if you were not a woman, <laughs> we you would totally have a job now but you know and probably I would have been even sponsored to the seminary and so that was that was discouraging at, at that point yeah that's and to have that in mid-conversation I mean I couldn't imagine like it's not like they didn't call back it was like in the conversation oh you're a woman oh well no what happened was they left the again this is going to say how old this, this story is, they left a message on my answering machine. And so they said all this like positive stuff on my answer machine. So I, for a long time, I don't even know where that answer machine is now, but for a long time I kept that. Cause I was like, I know, I'm, <laughs> you know, this is so crazy. And then I called them back afterwards. And it was at that point when they were just kind of like, oh. wow. <laughs> So you have a, such a clear before and after. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's, and so how was that something that you felt anger towards or something like, okay, hopefully in time that goes away? Like, what was the emotional it, reaction? It wasn't anger so much. It was more disappointment. Like, okay. yeah. <laughs> like, like how your parents say, I'm not angry at you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That was kind of how I felt like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in you, church. But then I was just like, hey, there's got to be some place um, where I will be welcomed. And, you know, thankfully, I was able to find a, a place like that in Maryland. So, hey, you know, and, and to their credit, Allegheny East Conference has been um, kind of on the forefront of that for many years before many of the other regional conferences. And so kudos and shout out to them. Um, my conference, my home conference is now at a point where they definitely will hire women in ministry and they have had several pastoral uh, women in uh, pastoral positions. And um, what my good friend Paula Olivier just um, became, she's the youth director for Northeastern Conference and she just became the president of uh, the Black Adventist Youth Directors Association. So, you know, this is this is a really great moment now that we're living in where we can say like, hey, there is so, such widespread acceptance. But even in my home conference, they don't ordain women. Still, there's commissioning or an ordination, which is ridiculous. Yeah. 
a ridiculous distinction because it's literally the same thing. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, oh, no, no, we don't we don't have green tickets, but we do have these blue yellow ones. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. But um, but yeah, it it has been progressing, but there is a long way to go. And I'm glad to see so many places that have changed leadership over the years and gotten people who are much more um, open to allowing women to do what they did historically in the time of Ellen White, because a lot of people don't even recognize the fact that during the early church, we had lots of women in ministry and lots of female pastors. And this entire region that I live in, um, owes a lot of the Adventist churches to the evangelistic efforts of female evangelists. And a lot of that history is, is kind of forgotten in the larger church. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that we kind of are recapturing that um, because after Ellen White died, it was just kind of like, oh, people sort of forgot that we had women. Like, what? How did you, how did you kind of forget the first, you know, 50, 60 years of Adventist church history, but whatever. Um, so that kind of is, is coming back to where it should have been all along. So, Or the simple fact that the gospel was first given to women who went to Jesus' tomb and his ministry was oh, absolutely. Absolutely. sponsored by women. Like it, yeah, I find it hard to justify women not being in leadership. Like I, I try to get into that point of view to understand and have a better conversation but I can't even get into that side of the conversation because it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Mary Magdalene was the first, literally the first evangelist. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of crazy to think that people um, don't understand or don't see or don't un realize how or why women in ministry are valuable. And, um, you know, I often will talk to people both about uh, obviously the biblical passages, but specifically Adventism, it, it's, it's just so cognitively dissonant for anyone to be specifically an Adventist <laughs> where, you know, one of the most prolific writers and influential leaders of this denomination was a woman and then be like, no, women can't be in ministry. I think that you honestly have to disconnect yourself from logic to both be an Adventist and say that women can't be in ministry. There's no coherent kind of argument that allows you to hold both of those things at the same time. So it's like, don't think too hard about it. <laughs> and then you can, yeah. you can justify sort of that kind of that brand of discrimination. And it, it, it just really doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. No, and I know as a as a former Adventist teacher, sometimes it bleeds into the teaching world where women can't be teachers or women can't be principals. And you're just, you're sitting there kind of dumbfounded, like, what? That that makes no sense. Yeah. But it's, it's quite, it's hopefully a thing that can catch on a little more and that, you know, the gap between Ellen White and not ordaining women can hopefully be bridged. <laughs> Just or, or you know, she was the fact that she had three ordination certificates herself. Like, oh, we don't <laughs> just don't talk about that. It's just kind of like, hmm. um, but you know, again, I think that it was 
you know, the hand of God that kind of allowed me to be in ignorance of all of this, because, you know, had I known any of this before I became Adventist, and especially before I went to school for theology, you know, my life may have had a very different direction. I probably wouldn't have gotten into ministry. To be quite honest, if I knew that there was this bias against women, I probably wouldn't have joined the church. And that's just reality um, because my family has always been very much in the on the side of equality. Um, I have three older brothers. I don't have any sisters, so I'm the only girl. And my fam- I still have this like threadbare shirt that my parents gave me when I was little. It says anything uh, boys can do, girls can do better, you know, <laughs> because yeah. it reinforced to me that, like, hey, you can do whatever you want to do. And that was very, um, that was very ingrained to me from a very early age. So, it, you know, to consciously belong to any organization that felt like that was something that they didn't, uh, support, I would have had a very difficult time um, becoming a part of that. So I think that my ignorance of this wider world of Adventism (laughs) was to my benefit. And I think that if um, it hadn't been that way, my life would have been very, very different. Very Wow, yeah. It's, and I think that may become with the difference of joining the church later on, opposed to being one of those lifers, you know, third or fourth generation. Mm-hmm. Perhaps there was a newness and spirit that let you get through all the cobwebs of these issues down your journey for sure. Cause you seem to have quite the story of just breaking so many parts of the Adventist box, coming in as a female pastor. Um, and then as you mentioned in your story, bringing in the the realm of mental health issues mm-hmm. because it is, that's one of my teachable areas. I'm a special needs teacher. So the awareness of that is so minimal. It's mm-hmm. sometimes outright, you know, my kid doesn't have an issue. Like, well, no, they need some support. Yeah. Pray the issue away. Like, well, prayer right. helps, right. but so do right. these tools. Right. And I think that's a big bias area as well of, understanding diagnosis, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's ADHD all the way to various autism, whatever it may be, is how do we minister to something, but we have to recognize it first. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, you know, when you talk about boxes, I mean, I, I didn't go out to set like these boundary breaking uh objectives or anything like that. That that wasn't my goal. I just didn't know that there was a box to be in, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you don't know there's a box, then you can go all the way outside of it and you don't even really realize it. And I think that the environment that I grew up in was very supportive. And again, though, like you were saying, there are some places where it is very much, um, there's still some things that we need to work on as a church. I mean, I do I originally set out to do counseling, but right now my practice is primarily focused on assessment. And so I do assess people with autism and ADHD and um, also all the way up to geriatric patients who have uh, dementia and, you know, traumatic brain injuries and different things like that. And so I do that spectrum of work. And it's very interesting that there are lots of people who just, um, even when they come to get an assessment, 
um, depending on, you know, cultural barriers, they might feel like, oh, I can't accept this diagnosis, which is really interesting. And, and it takes a lot of patience to try to, you know, get through that with a lot of people. And, you know, I understand because of my cultural background, both being Black and being Adventist, you know, any kind of Christian, um, and having that stigma attached to mental health, for me, I can talk to them in a way that lets them know, listen, I understand um, where that stigma is coming from. I get <laughs> why this is sort of difficult to maybe wrap your head around. And so we're going to walk through it together because, um, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, their kid comes in and maybe I don't prescribe medication, but, you know, sometimes I recommend like maybe it's good to go to um get some medication for this specific diagnosis. I've given you a very specific diagnosis. Go to uh, someone who can help you get medication for that. And, and sometimes there's a lot of hesitancy to that. But, you know, I, I just lay it out like, hey, if this was a heart problem or if this was, some, you know, a diabetes or some other kind of thing, if you had cancer, if you had any other physical ailment and somebody said, hey, this medication will help you, um, you take it, right? You wouldn't say, oh, no, I'm just going to pray it away. Oh, no. Yeah. You, you you would take something if it was proven to be something that can, can be beneficial and helpful for you. And I don't think that medicine helps everything. I don't think it's a panacea. I think it it has been proven, it's not I think, I know, that it's been proven that for many psychological uh, diagnoses, um, medicine plus therapy is what really makes the big difference, not an either or. And so the idea that people are okay with going to a doctor for physical ailments, but are very, very reticent to um, accept treatment for anything that's mental health related, is something that we have to work on in lots of different communities, but in particular, the Christian community and in the Black community. Yeah, I, I've wondered a lot about that. Is why, why is there that blockage? It seems that we, we as Adventists are such into the head game of we need to know the right stuff. And I've often wondered, well, if we're so adamant about thinking the right things, wouldn't we want help? In mental health, like to me, those things kind of go together. So, kind of going back to the Ellen White women pastor thing, it's like we're so headstrong as a church with our thinking brain, and yet we don't connect to mental health. It seems like another disconnect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, definitely. Especially since we are very much into health, we preach the health message. The health message is is so important to us, and we think about health. Um, and this is a lot of people. It's not just Adventists. But many people think of health just as whatever happens with your body and not with your mind, even though your brain is obviously a part of your body, um, yeah. kind of have this disconnect as if it's a separate entity, which, um, you know, Adventists, we believe that there is, you know, the breath of life plus the body equals a living soul. We don't believe that you have a separate soul, <laughs> but sometimes we think of it like that. We think of the, the soul as disconnected from your body and that that soul is just, you know, just pray and God will take care of that soul and the rest of the, the physical stuff is the only thing that 
you need to go to a doctor for. So again, like you said, sort of that disconnect in our avenue thinking because we don't believe that there are these two dichotomous entities. We believe in, in holistic, um, we are a holistic being, but we don't treat ourselves like that. So yeah, definitely, definitely something that avenue should be sort of in the forefront of, of talking about. Yeah, that's what I've wondered. Like, I've been to Little Melinda. I made my pilgrimage, and that's where you did a lot of your training. And you know, you, you come across these tiring accomplishments of Adventist health, and you sit there and you wonder, like, wait, what about mental health? What about access for those that have hearing issues or those that think differently? Like, w- why is there this almost purist way of, you know, you need to be quote unquote normal, and yet when we deviate from that, no, stress isn't a real thing. No, actually it is. And yeah, absolutely. I've had students whose parents won't take them to counseling mm-hmm. because it's not a real thing. Right, right, right. They're just an evil child. I'm like, yeah. no, your kid's pretty pretty good. <laughs> and it, it, it's really hard to work through that. And I don't know where that blockage has come from. That's something I've never quite understood. But it's yeah, quite interesting. I think there is a part of it that comes sort of from a lot of misunderstandings about what psychology is. Um, psychology as a science and, you know, just in general, 19th century medicine was always kind of wonky, like <laughs> thinking about the stuff that they did, it was kind of not that great. Um, and so people sort of accepted the fact that medicine that dealt with physical self uh, changed and developed and, and progressed and people sort of accepted, oh yeah, you know, these things are different now, it's better now, people learn more um, and they are better at um, understanding how the body works. And so we've made these advances. For, for some reason, people still have a conceptualization of psychology as being what it was in, you know, the 19th century and the 1800s, like, you know, mesmer, like that's where we get the word mesmerize and, you know, hypnosis. And we yeah. Have that, that popular idea of somebody laying on the couch and getting a watch, like, yeah. <laughs> have the pendulum in front of their eyes. And, you know, the, the psychologist is going to suggest things to them. You know, we, we'd have all these little crazy ideas. And the media has not done a great job of accurately representing what what counseling is either it's it's pretty bad in a lot of media so uh, i think that all of those things um and just not really understanding it not having the accurate media pictures and then people being like you know i can pray it away and i think that uh, if 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 it's really something that is an issue god can take care of it and i don't have to use any of the god-given uh, professionals who are who are available to me so uh, i think that all of those things kind of get into a, a slurry of stigmatization well then we see in your story we saw the uh, the crossroad of this area and being a pastor because i remember when um with my first marriage my ex-wife and I went to an actual marriage counselor. Like a for real. Not- <laughs> a, for, a for real, yeah. Not, not like a fake one. <laughs> yeah. 
we, and we were talking to her friends and like, oh, are you can go to marriage counseling? And we're like, yeah, we went to an actual counselor. Yeah. One friend was like, that's so great. The other friend was like, oh, you didn't go to a pastor? Yeah. I, and I, we're I, like, no, we wanted the real thing. And <laughs> like somebody who knows how to do this. <laughs> and that kind of goes into the, the next part that, you, I mean, you answered it with your story, but the the expectations placed on pastors because you're trained in theology. You even talked about, you know, your Greek and Hebrew, and yet we seem to want them to be counselors. We seem them to want them to be psychologists, right? We, we expect this high level of um, counseling piece when that's not really the job set. They're theologians, yeah. right? And so I wonder about that kind of burden. You answered it with your, you know, your PhD program and, in these amazing ways but for the average pastor that doesn't engage in a counseling degree like there's there's a bit of that bias there too that a pastor can answer anything yeah like, well no they have limitations yeah and i and i think that our church has done a good job of reinforcing that um so there is the expectation from um church members who have these superhuman ideas about what pastoring is. The pastor can be the, basically the CEO of the church. And so, and they're also the CFO if they want to be, and they're also the worship leader, and they're also the communications leader, and they're also the, you know, they do all these things. And I think that even in conferences, a lot of the officers and administrators are pastors, like, we hire pastors to do all of those things on the conference level and on the union level. And so it's not, it's not surprising that that's the expectation that churches have on the congregational level that, oh yeah, the pastor's going to do all this stuff. And there are some pastors who take that and embrace it, I think to their detriment, because, you know, there are people in our congregation who run multi-billion dollar companies and who are bank treasurers and things like that like you don't have to tell them how to you know <laughs> balance the budget they, they can kind of figure that out you know yeah and that pastors sometimes can believe their own hype <laughs> and also i think that um sometimes pastors are expected to do all these things so um there is partially a self-imposed burden and partially an administrative burden and partially a congregational burden that all leads to this really unhealthy um, expectation of what pastoring is. Yeah, and you mentioned too the um, the kind of policies around um, education advancement because your advancement you had to pay yourself. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who, a pastor friend who did his um, master's in worship theology mm-hmm. and the conference asked him when would he ever use this mm-hmm. and he's like all the time and they wouldn't sponsor him yeah and we seem to have a very one track like you said the the mdiv like i i i laugh too because i mean we our structural model is very much like the catholic church just with different oh. names oh, yeah. <laughs> but like that's i think that's part of the problem that you're poking at well is diversity of training like ordination and leadership aren't the same thing but we've kind of made them into a solid unifying thing like i have another pastor friend 
who loves video editing. Mm-hmm. But he had to become a pastor first, and then he eventually kind of made this hobby into what he's eventually got to do. Yeah. And like, why why can't we just hire a video editor? Why couldn't he yeah. just be? Yeah. And I know there's you know some small churches and budgetary things that you know focus that you only can pay for one person who has to do everything. But I like what you said too, the expectation, right? Mm-hmm. The expectation that my pastor can but do the budget that they can do the communication, that they're doing the online church part, that they're counseling on the side. And if there's a school, they're teaching a religious mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder, like, do we change the training? Do we have to adjust our expectations? Like, what would be some answers to allow pastors to be theologian-based pastors? Well, I, th- I, th- I think there's a lot of things that need to change. I think... Uh, conferences have to set better expectations um, in, within their congregations. And I do recognize, because I, I did pastor a small church um, before. So my church in Fresno, so while I was uh, chaplain, I was also pastoring a church in Hanford, California called Hanford House of Hope. We had a, it's a very small, I love that little church. It's a cute church, very warm congregation, loved it. Um, and the needs of a small church are much different than being at a multi-pastor church that's a large um, church in a metropolitan area um, because Hanford is super rural and Baltimore and LA are totally different. So when I was at Book of Life, when I was at Miracle, those were huge congregations. So you have all these different people that you rely on, but you don't have that in a small church. So I recognize that pastors at different places have to have different skill sets, but we have to kind of say, um, these are sort of the things that you can expect, and these are the things that you shouldn't expect, so that we're able to manage those expectations um, correctly. I don't know if how to do that specifically because different conferences are going to be different, right? Different churches are going to be different. Um, so where it starts, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Do we start at the, <laughs> at the conference level? Do we start those changes at the congregational level? I, I can't tell you. I don't know. Um, but I think that it needs to change in one way or the other because you are there is an attrition happening now where a lot of people are saying hey i don't have to do this um and burn myself out (laughs) when i can do something else and so you do have a lot of pastors who are leaving um you have fewer people even going into pastoral ministry fewer majors who go into theology so at a point we have to do something drastic because um, the models that we've been working with decade after decade aren't really working anymore and we're not retaining the pastoral ministry workforce that we had in previous times. Well, I think we can bring our talk to a close. I'm very thankful for your story. I'm very thankful that you've taken time to share with us and encouragement to keep breaking the box, even if you're not aware of it. <laughs> right, right, right. If you just ignore the box, if you pretend like the box isn't there and just do whatever God tells you to do, you'll be all right. (laughs) 
thanks again for listening to this episode of our podcast. As we end, I would like to acknowledge that these conversations are recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Stolo Nation. With a big special thanks to our executive producer, Alexander Carpenter, our editor, Bryce Hallock, and to our creative team. We have Brittany May with logo design and Jared Jameson on audio. Also, a big shout out to our Spectrum friends over in New York City for their continued support of this program. Thanks.